Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors, your tax depreciation experts. And today we have a broking expert, senior broker from PKF Perth Financial Services, Janine Leaf. Now you may have come across Janine on social media before. She's got a massive following and put some awesome content out on LinkedIn. We have a chat to her about the mortgage broking industry, what investors need to know when they're structuring their finances, why she got into the game in the first place, and she gives us some awesome advice on the types of investments she favors and how to spot a spruker. She's forever calling out people for rubbish that they share in the property investment industry with a clear agenda. I'm sure you get a lot out of this one. Here's Janine. Janine Leaf, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. It's an absolute pleasure, Mike. Um, We spoke before saying that we've been avidly following each other in the background and, and not connecting just yet. (laughs) <laughs> it's 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 been a yes it's been a a long period where I've been a fan of your work and uh definitely overdue to have a chat to you for people that haven't seen you in and around social media and those sorts of things can you give us an insight into who you are and what you specialize in yeah so my um, background majority is in residential lending and investment lending and um asset finance as of late um, asset finance has started most more recently in my new role. So I work for a mid-tier accounting firm, um, which has been wonderful. And I actually really wish I began um, my career in this space originally. It's very professional and it's more suited to who, who I am as a person. It's been a very interesting career um, thus far, but very passionate in the finance sector. It's where I'm meant to be. And what about growing up? What were the posters on the bedroom wall? Oh, goodness. I was convinced I was going to be a lawyer. So I, I actually genuinely wanted to be a lawyer from the age of seven. And I know a lot of people think that's crazy, but I also I just knew from a young age that I wanted to be in business. I was used to walk around with my father's briefcase and his suit jacket on and wear, and wear glasses. I don't know where the glasses came from because that <laughs> I had them somehow but um yeah so as a young child I don't know I just had a lot of drive um, and motivation and probably because mom brought us up as military kids because <laughs> she was had five children and she got us all to work from a very young age so mm-hmm. um, I've known nothing more than working so I've always been a, a solid worker I've got a strong work work ethic um kind of fell into finance um, because I was studying human resources and management. I've always had a managerial kind of way about me. Um, So I wanted to see myself in a senior role and then stumbled into finance at around the age of 17 and continued on from there. I mean, that's still quite young anyway, but uh, it's unusual to be seven and think, you know, the law profession, that's that's for me. I don't know. I just, I really, and to be honest, it's, it may even be something that I still consider. I feel, even though I'm in my mid thirties now, I still feel young enough to tackle a new industry if I wanted to. But if I was to go that down that route, I'd probably go more the commercial side. Um, you definitely couldn't do family law, but for the moment, I'm, I'm very happy and comfortable in the finance space. Mm. 
You know, I think there was a story recently about a guy who graduated with a law degree. I think he was 89 or something like that, so you've got yeah. plenty of time. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure he'll have a, a, a very um, very long practice, but uh, yeah. he's hoping. He's hoping. Um, how did you get started in, in property and what was your first investment, Janine? Oh, it's a look. I have had the most interesting journey, I guess, um, personally. So when it came to property, like the the first um, experience I had with property was through my parents. So I mentioned earlier that um, I came over to Australia in 1992. My parents brought us over when um, because when we were children, because there was five of us, and they wanted to give us the best opportunity where we came from we probably weren't going to have the best opportunities in life. So they thought, let's go and move to Perth and, and start anew. So the first property that they purchased was $80,000. Um, and at that time, it seemed like a lot of money. The interest rates were a lot different then. And um, I'm not sure if you'll remember, but they so they started off with an $80,000 property. And my parents have always um, renovated. So they picked the worst house on the worst, on the best street um, with what they could afford and then renovated it all of themselves and then carried on the profits from there. So they were able to bring over what I suppose a 25% deposit from England. And then I watched them flip properties basically over a number of years in my youth. All of my siblings and I, we, we pitched in and helped with the, um, I suppose, ripping the place apart and and doing what, as we were told, and just living in disheveled houses most of my youth. But now I understand um, why they were doing it. And watching their journey, I thought, wow, okay. Now they're quite humble. My parents, they'd move one property to one property. So I know you're a property investor, so that'll probably kill you knowing that they never used their equity to build a property portfolio. <laughs> but they, um, yeah, they moved from one house to one house. So personally, I've watched how my mum turned an $80,000 investment to now over $1 million. And my, for myself, my first property was with my partner and I was the age of 19, I think it was, and we built a home and then I moved on from that partner and we, I was in another property. But that one in particular, and this is one of the questions you asked me, was um, what was one of the biggest mistakes I ever made? So the biggest mistake I ever made was the selling of that said property. Yeah. And um, the reason was that property we should have held on to because the next year was when we had the property boom in WA. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with the property boom that happens over here. Mm. So that, so what year were we talking? So that was 2000, I think it was 2009. Yeah, yes, yeah. I remember. I actually, um, I actually went on um, – your money, your call, and and called out Perth as being having upside potential. I've got to find that recording because oh, that's my do. that's my claim to fame. That's my best crystal ball moment, yeah. and I don't think anyone watched it. <laughs> oh, I tell you, like yeah, that was big. That was you know the re the resource boom sort of tied in. It was you know, pretty yes. impressive. But ultimately, it's now knowing what I know and and having watched certain things happen in the market. Um, I believe that we're pretty much we're going to have something similar. I think in WA, and I know it's a big call to make, but it's all the indicators are there. About prior to COVID happening, I, I did suggest that we were already heading towards a recessionary state, and then funnily enough, COVID's just made ensured that that's happened anyway. 
And I'm looking at WA over the last 10 years, we've been, the prices have been declining gradually anyway. So after the boom, we had to recorrect. And then it's, we've just, I think up to about 10, 15%. And now I'm looking at properties that were to in the 200,000s back in the early 90s. So that's me going back to the 90s when we moved over. Um, and the comparable. So I'm looking at places that are 500, 600 square meters and the wharf around $250,000, four by twos, close to the ocean in established areas, they'd be positively geared straight away as well. So I'm mm. WA is very much an opportunistic market at the moment. So we're and the, the, the rental market's market. getting tight too as well, as well, right? It is. So well, that one I was actually quite interested in because I thought that more people would be purchasing in WA versus renting. But I've heard on the um, ground that each rental has got like a waiting list of 40-odd couples. So people are just diving in and trying to get a place. So it's a bit strange on, in that side because it's if you have the capability to get a mortgage, I believe people should be buying versus renting. Yeah, and I think now is is maybe one of the best times to be a, a first home buyer in Australia than there's probably been for a long time with the government incentives, the incentives, the interest rates, the real estate market, such such as it is. Now, um, there's also uh, it's a very good timing to have uh, a financial uh, expert broker on on the podcast. But I just wanted to ask one question about your yeah. background that sort of. Um, just seems a bit bizarre to me. So you, your family's from Liverpool, correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. And and, and your parents sort of thought, oh, you know, I want to give these these kidlets the best start in life. Liverpool, okay, where do we go? And it sounds like they spun a globe, shoved a digit at it and hit Perth. From Liverpool to Perth, there's, there's I mean, why Perth? Oh, I'll, I'll, look, I'll be honest, they still do it these days anyway. It's it's just promoted highly. <laughs> it's right. literally just when you look at immigration, um, it's either Canada or Perth for some reason. <laughs> like they're really? the two options that are sold to um to Liverpoolians. So it's just I think Mum sat. She said it was either going to be Canada or Australia, and they tossed it over a number of times. And funnily enough, um, Mum was younger than I am now when she made that decision. And I think about it, and I think. It was a pretty bold move to make at the age of 30 to take her five children away from all the family because I'm from a very large family. My father's one of nine and my mom's from a smaller family. But um, it was a really big move to make to uproot themselves and start all over again in a new place. But, yeah, the, once we came to Perth, Perth was a little sandbox, like legitimately a sandbox. And I know people still find Perth very sleepy and backwards <laughs> compared to other states but it's i'm feeling quite blessed in that um we did move here there has been there there's definitely been an upside to, to moving to perth yeah well it's, it's it's weird to sort of think that you could be uh you could be sitting in a log cabin in canada observing moose walking <laughs> past well, the house i don't know if it's um, weird or if it's sad <laughs> But it would be a nicer thing to look at some moose right now. <laughs> but, but perhaps, perhaps. I don't know what the case numbers are like in, in Canada. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about when you first got started in broking. So you you, you joined that profession at, at 17 as a, a sort of a bit of an accident. You knew you wanted to be in business and management. Why why did you get into broking? Oh, sorry, sorry. I'll, I'll clarify on that. So with the broking, I've been in broking only for seven years. 
with right. um, the finance um, portion, at the age of 17, I so I started working when I was 14, and look, I won't bore you to death with those details, but pretty much it's if you can earn money, bring money into the household, that's why I've been brought up. So um, I went from the paper round to working for an IGA. The IGA was the stepping stone, so they found that I had an innate ability, an, an, an innate ability with finances. So somehow I ended up running, doing all the cash tills, also running the Bank West, which was attached as a neighbourhood branch to this IGA. And then somehow I ended up doing all of the back-end computer work for seven IGAs from the age of 17 to 19, I think it was. Wow. So um, I, I don't know. I actually really enjoyed it. I found it very easy. Um, and then that's – so I started – I've done, I think, a university degree as well in my final year of high school because I was offered a number of scholarships. And then, I, yeah, I just went down the commerce route. I started off with accounting um, and I struggled, I'll be honest, I struggled a little bit with tax, although I've got a great um, understanding of it now in my older years, but I struggled a lot with it when I was younger. And um, so I was like, oh, maybe this isn't for me. So I complete the other, um, yeah, the HR management business law degree and then continued on and then done the finances for my parents' business because they have a heavy machinery business. Mm-hmm. So I won the books for them for a number of years while I had young children because I had my first daughter when I was the age of 23. All right. Yeah. And so, so I don't know. And then, so the broking thing, the broking thing was, a, it's been a hard path. I, I won't lie. And at some stage I'll tell the full story about my path with him broking. But if I understood the nature of broking and in that it's majority sales based to a degree, mm-hmm. um, especially in the time that I began, which was seven years ago, so it's definitely very much more, it's changed now to more service-based, which I've always treated my role as a service-based provider anyway. I'm not transactional. I think um, if your mortgage broker is transactional, you're not ha- you don't have the right broker. You need somebody that understands your financial position, where you're going, and the nature of your purchase. And you'll, I'm sure you'll appreciate that, Mike, um, knowing what you understand in investments. With a broker, yeah. you need somebody that understands the difference between negative and positive gearing, between capital growth and what somebody that wants to um, purchase and flick, like so renovate and flick. They're all different. So you, I don't know. It's very important to me that when I look at my client's financial position, I'm actually looking at the superannuation, their age, the reason why they're purchasing um as just the whole piece if they're insured if they've got enough insurance so i'm quite passionate at um ensuring that my clients have got the best for what they can have in their current situation and it has to suit their long-term goals as well so my broker my broker experience started off with me being a broker assistant um and then from there I just grew into a broker quite quickly because I was able to generate um, my own business. Yeah, and and just on that, I mean, it might be a bit of a a cliche, but I can't think of any way to talk about your early sort of broking career without saying burst onto the scene. Um, You obviously won a number of uh, awards as a a broker early on. What was it that you think that 
it got people's attention. I mean, obviously the the service uh, is is a huge thing for you, and I, and I couldn't agree more. The value, especially for property investors, to understand the the strategy and and all of the nuances behind um, the financial component of that. But what what was it that you think made you successful and got people's attention? To be honest, I, I can clearly link it to to LinkedIn. So now it's um I talk about LinkedIn quite a bit, but there is a reason why I started that page and that's and this is probably what people most people don't know is um I lost a one of my nephews at a very young age so I was the age of 30 when he passed away and I went through obviously a very rough period of time it was the most harshest loss that I've ever experienced in my life and I don't think I hope and pray I never have to um compare that to anything ever again and during that time, I just had this complete flip in, in how I dealt with life in general and also with my direction. I thought, you know, what am I going to do that's valuable to people, that's going to make me happy, and I've got to give back to this world because just felt a little bit um, empty at that time, I guess. And I jumped on LinkedIn because I thought, I, I've been in this industry now for a number of years. I keep seeing repetitive um, issues and things that people are doing wrong like consistently and it bothered me so I thought I'm going to start doing videos and just see if I can reach people and talk about the basic fa- fundamentals of finance and I got a lot of joy from it and um, and it just so happened that one of my videos just went went viral I suppose for LinkedIn standards um, at the time because not many people were actually on it then and that I think that was about that would have been three years ago or so, and mm. that's um, so that one I, I think I had like a couple of hundred thousand views, and I know that's probably usual for people these days, but at the time it was actually unusual. And then from there, I just had a lot of opportunity, so I got to meet some really amazing people in the industry. I kept on putting out my content, and then it just things just kind of were flowing really nice and then I was seen more as a female leader in the industry um, as opposed to just being a mortgage broker and look I'm quite proud of the fact the awards that I've been um, able to achieve have been on the leadership side as opposed to volume based and um, and I'm yeah I'm quite content in that (laughs) so no it's been it's been quite nice to be acknowledged in that space and that's more so where I want to see myself as well is that I like people to be able to come and talk to me if they've got questions. And a lot of people did in the early stages of their career as well. They asked for advice on which aggregator they should go to and what methods they should use for marketing, etc. And I've sat and spent countless hours with them, numerous brokers and give them advice on what they should do and, and things that they should try and avoid as well in the industry. So it's been, yeah, that- I do enjoy that pit, that aspect of my job. That, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic, and you're you're definitely a heavyweight on LinkedIn. That's where I came across you. You know, I, I, w- I was thinking to myself as you were talking about those numbers. I- I was very chuffed to get 3,000-odd video views on something that I put the other day, and then you're talking about hundreds of thousands. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a different league. Um, let, let's talk about uh, the, 
the, I guess the issues, the recurring issues that you saw that were really sort of the the reason why you you lent into to LinkedIn and wanted to share the information. A, a big part of, of of joining, I think, the finance sector and sharing information was was leaning against the headwinds of misinformation. I'm wondering what sort of stuff do you see that kind of has you shaking your head? Oh wow, there's um, there's a number of things, but I'm sure that you can relate to this one as well. So investments when it comes to investments if i see targeted ads to fifo workers one more time i'll just bang my head against the wall so ultimately to give context my ex-partner um was a fifo worker and he'd worked away for two or 20 years and he was very successful at what he'd done and he was the whole adage of oh my friend's got an investment property we should buy an investment and everybody else was doing it and you know you should do it because as every FIFO worker has an investment property and I think that the biggest mistake a lot of people make is they judge themselves against others based on the loose information that they have and they believe that well if so and so is doing it then so should I if the Joneses are doing it everybody that earns this amount of money has an investment property I should also in- invest and that's not at all why you should be investing you have to be investing for either capital growth or income generation. You need to know the difference between the taxation implications as well, because obviously, like if it's going to be negatively geared, um, that's good for um, getting your tax returns, and you can probably speak more about that side of things. But it's, so it can be used for different – you have to understand your own financial goals and if it's suitable to that. You don't buy an investment just because everybody else is buying one. And that's mm. mistakes I saw was a lot of people were buying investments that just were not suited to their situation whatsoever. And then um, one of the biggest scams that I saw in WA was before, so obviously before the boom, there was property in the mining sector um, that was super, like superiorly cheap. So I was in the 200,000s. When the boom happened, these properties went up fourfold. I'm talking from $200,000 to $800,000 plus. Um, so overnight, people were made property millionaires. But those that were savvy enough actually sold out at that time and converted it to other asset classes, right? So you can appreciate that. But what happened was there was a lot of mom and dads that were sold the dream at the height of the market. And you and I both understand that at the height of the market, the risks are so much greater and that particular property market was only driven by the mining sector. And the mining sector, as I knew it, because I was part and parcel of being with my husband at the time who was working in it, I was watching the iron ore price and the iron ore price started to drop. And within six months, it was still continuing to drop. And I thought, this is going to be devastating for those sectors. And that property market dropped from 900000 back down to 200000 overnight. So all those people that were sold the dream of having a $2,000 weekly rent, and I mean, like, this is literally how it was sold, was you can buy this property for $800,000, you are going to get, or eight to 900000 you're going to get $2,000 weekly return. And people thought, yeah, brilliant, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to retire on this. And then it all went bust within a number of years, and it was yeah. absolutely hideous to watch. And, like, that's the extremity of what I was discussing before. But you still have now people that are buying investment properties one by one 
like a one bedroom, one bathroom unit um, that's in a highly saturated market for 450 and look our prices are a lot different than over on the east coast obviously but in pair for four hundred fifty thousand dollars for that is just an absolute ridiculous investment and mm. people are still buying these things and they don't understand um yeah that's absolutely unsuitable so like my concerns are people don't understand investments and why they're purchasing them regardless of what the asset class is be it shares property gold anything even in cryptocurrencies people obviously delving in that space as well they don't understand why they're buying them they just think they do it because their friends or family members are doing it and or they're sold by somebody that's an absolute crook if i'm fine just so many crooks that take advantage of people that have the lack of financial education I was chatting to someone yesterday and I, I said uh, something along the lines of you know, no one does a real estate boom like Sydney. But now that I think about it, it's these resource areas that do the crazy booms. And I, and I speak to a lot of real estate experts and economists and very, very 1% style people that are very clever and they don't play in the prospective trying to time these resource location markets. So if they don't feel confident that they can get the timing right and really minimise the risk to a point where it's an investment that they want to get into, what hope does someone who's just been sold the dream uh, on a bit of a, a bit of a brochure to say, look, this is, this is the numbers, you're crazy if you don't get in, all your mates are, are getting in. And um, I know that um, I've got a few people that work in the in the resource sector over in in WA, and they say as soon as you see um, a, a, a mine close, it's a row of utes and jet skis for sale, like the next yeah. the next week. Um, so it's good to invest your your money. Certainly, fly and fly workers um, can be very highly paid, and it's better to put it into an investment than toys. But you've got to have you've got to have a bit of strategy and education behind the investment as well right actually yeah absolutely the um look i'm not in when it comes to investing in property i'm not a like looking at it as a strategic type of move it's more because look and, and to give the context again i I've, i am actually financial a financial planner qualified but i don't operate as a financial planner um more so because i just don't look i can complete the studies but um, I'm not really interested in insurances, I'll be frank. I love yeah. asset classes and I love property and I love um, working on the debt side because ultimately if you don't have the right structure, then you're not going to get the um, the most benefit out of your investment as well. So in terms of what I do, I'm quite comfortable where I am. Um, but oh, I was just – sorry, what were we talking – what did you mention before? <laughs> we were talking. We were talking about the real estate boom, and and of course, you know, being on a, a high income, it, yes. it's good to get involved in an investment. But um, yeah, rather than buy all the toys and things, because often if you're getting paid two thousand dollars a week, it's it, it's going to be temporary. Yes. Um, but yeah, but investing in the dark, uh, it's 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 dangerous. But on the well, look on the flip side, though, um, I've been watching that sector again closely, especially because mining's now being switched back on in WA, although I do believe it might again be temporary given the COVID situation. So I'm very weary of the fact that everybody's like, oh, it's good times, you know, but ultimately WA is closed off to other states. We're investing back in WA and the mining sector is going through the roof. 
So we're going to more than likely have an uptain in the property sector. But those properties that were once 950,000, 800,000 are back down to 200,000 again. So mm-hmm. these are the things that people need to understand is if the property is 200,000, the downside is very small, right? Yeah, Ultimately, yeah, yeah. if it's going to be a 20% um, correction, then you're, you're going to lose a lot less than somebody that is a 20% correction when the, your property is close to a million dollars. So um, to me, I think it's probably actually an investment to be had at the moment. And especially given the invest um, the interest only rates at the moment, it would be yes. extremely positively geared from the day off. Um, even the if the mining sector was then to close, you could sustain those um, repayments more than likely until it switches back on again. So yeah, exactly. There's a lot of yeah. The 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 risk has been minimised in definitely uh, because look over the last decade they've plummeted and now i i actually believe and this is me putting myself out there i guess and um, that they are probably rock bottom if not close to rock bottom i don't think you can get any cheaper than what the properties are valued at up in those mining towns at the moment um, no. and this was what made those property millionaires at those time but it's about timing when you get in and when you get out of those asset yeah. classes yeah. So those yeah, that were savvy yeah, enough yeah. that made their six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollar returns, and then sold them, um, to sort, which is sad to the unsuspecting people that didn't understand what they were purchasing, um, they were the ones that made the money and ran. But it's just, yeah, yeah. Um, it's either look, there's always going to be winners and losers in the property market. We've just got to make sure that you're not on the loser side. And that can be, you can mitigate that s- simply by having the right people around you um, that have the knowledge and the know-how and understand more about the greater economics and what's going on in Australia-wide. If you don't understand economics, I don't really think you should be dealing in asset classes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, te- yeah. the team is absolutely cr- critical. Let's get to the lending side of things. It's been a massive two or three years for, for lending, and, and I guess the real shake-up probably began during the GFC. What have you observed uh, in the last little while and what were some of the big game changes in the lending space? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximise their claims and maximise their property education as well. So obviously with them, responsible lending, that's then wiped out a lot of people that were able to access um, funding. And then it's become that tight that now they've now reverted back and they're saying that they're going to relax policy again and um, I'm of two frames of mind so things look I was an advocate for the fact that we had um, the commission we needed the commission the royal commission because there were so many people out there that were very much transactional and there were so many um, brokers out there as well that were doing the wrong thing and I'll be honest like I was reading it consistently in the papers I was hearing about it from clients of mine that came to me other all the brokers and they're like well my mortgage broker didn't do this before and I was like well they should have been doing this these are what the things they should be doing 
So when the Royal Commission happened and it kind of weeded out those that should never have been in, in the industry, I think that was a brilliant move forward. And um, I want to see that continue on as well. So now what I think is, we they, look, so they've upgraded the education requirements as well. I think that was a massive win for the finance and um, for brokers because brokers are often just seen as you can get a set three and you can walk into being a mortgage broker and have a little bit of experience. But now they're saying, no, you know, we need to lift the standards and lifting those education requirements is a very positive move. I also believe that we definitely have got to the point that where it's become a little bit ridiculous and that common sense hasn't been applied to um, to lending. So I used to, I actually was a more um, an, a broker assessor at one stage. I worked for BOQ as a credit assessor and I learned an awful lot working on that side. And sometimes you personality comes into it and people wouldn't know that. But when your mortgage is put through to a lender, depending on who's assessing it, you may or may not be declined. And, um, and being on the assessment side, it was interesting because I, I was able to take a common sense and holistic view on an application as opposed to going, this doesn't fit the metrics, let's decline it. So um, what we're finding now is a lot of deals being declined where they should never have been declined. And I've, hand on heart, I've actually fought it with a couple of um, assessors, but on an um, intellectual level, not in a nasty way, but to say, I'm like, we need to look at the whole picture here. And I'm talking about people that are asset rich and they've got smaller sources of income. They can still save us a debt, but they're saying, no, we're not going to let them get an investment property. And I'm gone. this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And I'm mm. close to retirement or already in retirement. Um, if they've got an unencumbered home that's worth $1 million plus, and they're wanting to buy an investment property for $350,000 and it's positively geared, why wouldn't you lend to them? <laughs> like the minimum, the risks, the downside is just so minimal. And and some of these deals were not going through. So that was the ridiculous side of all of this tightening of policy and um, legislation. So I think I'm, an, I'm very much looking forward to them relaxing a little bit, just as long as those people that shouldn't be getting um, access to funds as long as they don't because there's some people out there that really cannot um, manage their own money and if they're given free reign and they're allowed access to cash, they'll spend it all in the wrong um, places and that's kind of where I'm a little bit passionate so I'm able to take my clients um, like look at the bank statements, look at their financial position and understand what kind of a spender they are and then try and have that conversation with them as to as to what they should be doing really and and give them some real feedback um people are afraid to to, to give proper advice and you look as a mortgage broker we're not supposed to delve in the advice piece I say, and i say that in inverted commas because we should really be giving guidance if we see deep-seated flaws in in what's happening especially if somebody has say personal lending um, up to $100,000 and the repayments on that and basically a mortgage, you should be asking them the question of what's going on here and what's your plan to get rid of these personal debts because they're usually attached to depreciating um, assets as well. So it's yeah. not as if it's improving their overall financial position. So look, all of these changes that are happening, they had to happen, but now it's time for us to, um, to come, come back to common sense a little bit 
and yeah, and then then move forward. So it's going to be interesting to see if this actually flows onto what um, what the government wants, which is to inject um, to what to stimulate the economy and stimulate spending. I don't know what your thoughts are, Mike. Yeah, look, I, I think that the restrictions were pretty arduous and I think as a result of the Royal Commission, banks just sort of closed shop and I think to get the economy back on track, we need uh, free-flowing capital. But it's 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 interesting though because we've got, um, as far as I understand, this is your area of expertise more than mine, is that the onus was on the bank to really say that this person can pay for the loan and if, if you got a loan and you couldn't really uh, repay it and the bank had evidence of that, then, then they are really being negligent. But now it's sort of, um, it's focusing more on the individual and their, their sort of ownership of whether they are in a position to be able to take on on the debt and I guess the brokers, the partner with that. Is that sort of really what this relaxation of the lending standards means? Yes, that's what that's what my understanding of it is, is that um, it's now time for the actual consumer to take um, responsibility, I guess, for what they're saying in the application and it's taking the onus off the lender. But I think that comes off the back of the um, Royal Commission and look, I'm sure you've been watching as well, all of the severe fines and everything that's been placed against the lenders but they deserved it for the actions that they took so we've probably seen i don't even know if it's been billions combined between the lenders that have been punished um for the irresponsible lending that they've been doing so mm. but now they're saying well look we'll relax on our policies and legislation if the consumer will take a bit of the onus on them um, on their own yeah, on their own lending. So I think that that's where it needs to be. And it's a bit of give and take. So if they want the money, then they need to be honest in what in their spending habits and, and what they're going to be using these funds for. What do you think the actual real-world result will be of that? Will, will people be uh, honest? Will it be balanced? And, and either way, do you think it's likely to, to lead to a bit of a real estate boom? I... I'm a massive advocate for the fact that I believe all of our states interact independently. And I've said this for a number of years, WA and Brisbane are very much interlinked because we're governed by mining, by by the mining sector, right? And then obviously Sydney is driven by the service sector. And so each of the states are driven by different sectors. So we're going to have different impacts depending on the lending WA has been trajectory downwards with the property prices for a decade now. So I kind of I believe that we're ready for another boom. I do not believe it's going to be anything like the 2008. Um, oh, sorry, when actually 2008 was the crash, wasn't it? Well, I just don't think it's going to be anything like the um, boom that we had, but it will be a mini-type boom, I believe, um, only because it's time for WA to grow again. And our economy is doing so well. I think we're going to be one of the first economies, micro economies within the Australian economy to actually um, come back good during the COVID crisis. I can't really speak for Sydney because I believe that portions of it are actually, I don't know, It's I think it's inflated artificially. Um, and I have my own reasonings to believe that. And I think a lot of it comes from foreign money in some st- mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and that's from my own experience, but we can discuss that another day. But I, I'm concerned that I don't believe it really needs to have another boom. If anything, um, 
it might just sustain the market and sustain demand and supply because people will they're going to want to purchase again. I just I find it very hard to believe that the average um, couple can actually sustain life over in Sydney. It still yeah. doesn't mathematically make sense to me because the the income is not that far off the average income of a WA person, but our house prices are a third of the prices mm. in Sydney. So I don't know. It's um it's it'll be interesting, but ultimately I do believe people will lend. Um, the interest rates are it's just it's historical lows, and it's definitely a time to if you can get um funding to go and purchase some assets and you purchase the right assets, it's definitely an opportunistic time to get to move forward realistically, especially if you're in your thirties. So I'm um yeah, look, there's a lot of positives to be had, but there's a lot of uncertainty for those who don't have secure um, incomes. So there's, yes. there's a two part attack to this is that if you are in a professional environment and you're in dual professional income family, these are the times when you should be taking advantage of either reducing your debt as well. And a lot of my clientele, I've put them on debt reducing plans because you're ultimately paying off principal at the moment with the interest rates being so low, but also then leveraging on the fact that they can then get investments to increase their income, to reduce their owner-occupied debt, and then they can have capital growth in that investment property over the long term. So there's um, if they do relax the policy like they're saying they will, and it'll be around March that they're going to do it. Um, I think it will actually switch on spending again. I think it will. Yeah, I think you're right. Let's talk about the investment. So obviously you've sort of pled the case for it. The timing is, is right, at least in, in certain areas of, of the country. What types of investments do you favour personally? I, I Look, I love property. Um so I'm, I'm actually geared up and ready to, to start again because I did have to start my portfolio again after a separation, which is normal for most, unfortunately. But, um, yeah. So I'm, it's funny how timing works. I believe the market is prime right now, and I've got a few clients that are actually looking and are actively buying investment properties at the moment um, in WA. Like I said, the, the downside is just so minor and the upswing is just so high because with a 10% deposit, um, you are buying into positive gearing straight away. So that, and for those that don't understand it, positive gearing means you're making income because you're covering all your costs from the rent, and that includes your rates and everything else, and um, and the obviously the interest payments on that debt too. So positively geared, if by pure virtue of the fact you can buy cheap property at the cheapest interest rates. And then you're going to have capital um, growth over the next five, ten years because I'm, I am talking long-term play here with property in WA market. It's not going to be an overnight thing. You need to understand that if you're in your 50s, 60s and you're looking to do it for retirement, it's probably a little bit more risky. But if you're in your 20s, 30s and buying your first home in these conditions, you, it's definitely going to set you up for um, financial success. So property is an interesting one. I actually had the opportunity to work um, in a stockbroking firm, which not many people know of. I was sat in there for 18 months, um, and I I only actually moved out of there in February of this year, and that was because I didn't want to go down the avenue of being a stockbroker myself. But I sat in there, and I was working as a mortgage broker from their office, and that was a very interesting time for me. I learned so much about about stock markets and IPOs, 
And so I'm definitely more interested in those asset classes as well, so shares. And I think if people can get in with a stockbroker, you do quite well, especially I've been watching. I don't, do you um, double in shares at all yourself, Mike? Uh, not very much these days. I've got a couple of positions. I've, I went uh, I went hard during the resources boom. I uh, was probably a, an unmitigated failure to <laughs> to define it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, honestly, I, I guess for me, it's one of those areas where I think the research requirement for me to feel comfortable and do well is is such that it's kind of a bit prohibitive. Given that my whole background is property, yes. um, but but certainly, um, yeah, it, it's always been of interest to me. Well, it, it comes back right to the to the economic piece I was talking about earlier. I have got. I'm very look. I, I've done quite well in statistics at university, and everything to me is about numbers and patterns. And so, come I knew when the so when COVID hit, right and. I just I knew straight away instantly was going to have an in, impact on the stock markets, and I watched all of those indexes. And then I actually done a number of posts on this, but I didn't write too much in it because obviously I'm not a stockbroker myself. But during that period of time, so in March, each of the indexes globally. So I'm talking about the ASX, um, the Nikkei, all of the like the London Exchange, all of them. They all and AS, they they crashed. But people were able to make 30% return within a couple of weeks when it recovered. And mm. that was across the board. And I knew that my stockbroken friends and those that understand shares, they were waiting happily in the background because they, they were waiting for that moment because these are like once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunities. They don't come across that often. So I wasn't I didn't dabble in it myself at the time, um, but I wish I did because I should have followed my own advice when I was watching the patterns when they all dropped off a cliff because you were able then to buy into blue chip stocks um, at a very cheap price and then see that those gains quite quickly. So, look, as an asset class, um, shares have been a very interesting one because it's some, something that's fairly new to me and something I've only been dabbling in probably in the last two years. But property, I think it's a comfort blanket because you, I don't know, people just love the fact that they can own a property, they can physically see it. Um, shares, obviously, you don't see and if you're a little bit anxious watching them increase and de- decrease on the daily in price, it, it's a bit worrisome. Mm-hmm. So you need to understand, are you going to, if, if you're going to buy in, what price do you want to be at buying and what price do you want to sell at? And not to get too greedy. I think um, the stock market is a bit for more for the punters and those that have got a bit more, they're, they're open to risk. But with their property, I think people just feel more safe in it. But I also feel like it's it's still a massive risk if you if you don't buy the right property. And I'm sure that you can back me up on that, Mike. If if you don't buy the right property or you're not given the right advice or you don't understand the market that you're buying into, you're really going in blind. Yeah. I, I believe you're right, and I think uh, from a statistics point of view, when we're looking at 72% or thereabouts of property investors only ever owning one property, I think that's evidence that we're often getting it wrong on the first one because I think if you're interested in investing in property, you're wanting to to really fundamentally change your, your retirement outcome or your levels of freedom, and one property is probably unlikely to, to make a huge dent in that. Um, and if people 
people are, you know, sticking sticking with the with the one. I think it's it's evidence that we're not always nailing it. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that, and that sort of leads me into the next question. And obviously, with a huge following on on LinkedIn uh, and being a bit of a media personality, a lot of people would be seeking you out. Um, and, and you would come across similar people in similar positions. I'm interested in your insights into how to spot a, a bit of a charlatan or a spruker in the in the property game. Ultimately, um, look, and this comes from experience. So I, I like to look, the reason why I feel I'm good at what I do is because I've seen it all. And I can avidly say hand on heart, I have been taken for a ride a number of times. And more so though, between the age of 19 and 25 um, and that was kind of what drove me to get into the finance sector myself because I saw so much that was happening that was wrong and I thought you know what I'd rather be a face in the industry that's trusted than see these people just be taken for a ride because it was just awful and um, the look one of the quickest ways to spot a spruker the you can tell by the advertising so um, there's no substance to it and by that I mean it's very um, clickbaitish, and it's just trying to. And especially when it comes to fly in, fly out workers, they are definitely heavily marketed to when it comes to property investing. But look, property investing is a great thing if you're doing it for the right reasons. They just get sold the wrong, um, the wrong type of properties. So look, I'd say for FIFO workers, be weary of the brand new developments that are in. Um, oversaturated markets, so i.e. apartment living in a, just, a, yeah, for example, in WA, um, there was a lot of apartments going up in Bearswood, um, and those they're now so saturated that the people are either in negative um, equity or they're pretty much breaking even, and long-term growth, it's probably not going to be, be there. So stay away from the brand, brand new developments in WA, I believe, um, because we've got so much land available. There's always going to be something else that can be built right next door. So if you're going to be building next door, that's going to depreciate the your, your asset value. But so, and in terms of um, salesmen in general, I think that one of the quickest ways to understand if you if you're dealing with a spruker is if they want you to go and sit in. Don't know what the name of them is called, but when you buy it, you get a free ticket and you can go oh, to a seminar, right? So oh, yes, yes. a bit of a laugh for you, Mike. I went to one of these seminars, and I do go to these seminars. Um, I, I do it more out of research and also because I want to see what's genuinely being sold to to poor, unsuspecting victims. I guess there was one I went to in particular, and I walked in and straight away they were selling the dream so what they were selling they weren't selling the product they were selling the dream of being rich and getting being a property millionaire and having a yacht and this that and the other and I had to stop myself from laughing but I looked around the room and there was this part of me that just died because I thought these people genuinely believe this they actually believe that they're going to be property millionaires by coming to this seminar that's free and when I tried to leave, at the back of the room, they had 10 people sat at desks and they almost didn't allow me to leave. They're like, no, not until you sign up. And I was like, excuse me. So they wanted your name, your number, and they wanted to get you on the mailing list because they wanted to start selling you investment opportunities, basically. And um, this particular person, I actually know of them quite well. And I just thought, this is just 
awful. So people get desperate and then they look to quick methods of becoming rich. Um, if somebody wants you to go to a free seminar, that's definitely yeah one of the worst things you can ever do for yourself. There, there, there are certainly yeah seminars. I think are, do throw up a little bit of a flag. I, I know for a fact that there are some great ones out there, but they're the ones that don't say for for tonight only you'll get X particular discount. They're the ones that that, that they don't have the sign up forms at the back of the room. So yeah. seminars, yes, be definitely cautious. But if they're saying like today only or sign up to something then, then that's where the hair should really stand up Absolutely. on the back of the neck that's what what's that's next for so, sorry janine no that's okay you go well i was just uh, just going to ask what's uh, what's next for you in in business and property and career and life well at the moment i feel um, i'm really content in in the place that i work so this mid-tier accounting firm i really feel that I've found my career home. So I've, I know that I've got a lot of growth opportunity within this um, the company that I work with and I've spoken to them openly about it too and, and where I want to see myself in the future. But on the on the personal side, um, I'm a massive advocate for education and I'll forever educate myself. Well, the next move for me, it's either going to be in, the, I'll do my master's um, so I'm tossing up whether or not it's going to be an accounting or just an MBA in general. So um, that's definitely the next step for myself. And that's something I want to do more so to ensure that um, I can be seen as a leader and continue to be a leader in the finance sector. And as a younger um, mother as well, I think I've got, if I can do this by the age of 40, that'll be, give me a good stead for um, put myself in a position where I can be a decision maker for the long run so that's the bigger plan for myself and it's a goal that I'll definitely stick to and when I decide I'm going to do something I pretty much follow through with it <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a shame I can't uh, bet on Janine uh, like the stock market because you're an absolute hustler and uh, I, I, I'm obviously you know, very impressed with the, the resume and what you've been able to do so uh, bad luck to anyone that's in your way yeah. how do people get in touch with you Janine if they uh, want to have a chat to you Oh, how do they get in contact, did you say? Yeah. But ultimately, um, I'm quite an open person. So funnily enough, my mobile numbers splash around everywhere. I'll, but um, I generally get contacted via Facebook Messenger, through LinkedIn messages, direct messages, phone calls, um, emails. So I'm happy for people to contact me in whichever method they wish, really. Yeah. As long as obviously they're on my um, my real pages. I know that there's a, couple, there's a few people that have... Um, imitated my pages and put them out there but i'm really? pretty sure people can find me that's the highest form of flattery gosh i wish I've, i i know i've really made it when someone creates a fake mark mortlock profile <laughs> that's, um, i was going to ask if anybody's tried it yet mike but yeah that's there's a few pages that have come up and i, I just think it's hilarious but it's, it's really nice because people um send them to me they're like oh somebody's trying to copy your page again but there's, so there's a few Janine Leaf stockbrokers out there apparently and foreign exchange um, people. <laughs> which oh, are, yeah, but they're obviously not myself. So, um, yeah, I don't deal in foreign exchange just in case you think I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're easy to find. So uh, anyway, you want to get in touch, uh, Janine is happy. Smoke, signal, messenger pigeon. Uh, <laughs> she'll, she'll receive them all. Now, if there's one piece of advice that you could impart to property investors, what would that be? 
Ooh, the most important piece of gas. Um, understand whether or not it's for income generation or for capital growth. What are you? What is this property purchase for? And if you're not looking five years down the track, then you shouldn't be property investing. You need to. It's it's not a short term game. So if you and definitely seek out um, professional advice and people that can prove that they've done it themselves. So don't be taking advice from people that haven't done it themselves. I love it. That's uh, all the best advice is normally pretty simple. I, I, I've found, Jenny, it's been a real pleasure today. Thanks very much for sharing your wisdom and joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mike, and um, I hope that we can have a chat again soon as well. I'm coming over to Perth. We're going to have a couple of drinks and we're going to trash a property seminar. How does that sound? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll go in there. I think that would be absolutely fantastic. I, I wouldn't mind um, running the streets with you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Good fun. Cheers. We'll talk soon. Thank you.